Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 20. If you've had a sense that we've slowed down just a tad lately in terms of how quick we're publishing episodes, your sense would be correct. I had the opportunity to take a short vacation and go on over to Naples, Florida and visit some of my closest friends. It was an absolutely beautiful few days off. And then I hopped on a plane and I'm back in Atlanta for a few days here before I head back to South Florida. All of this travel has made production of episodes just a little bit challenging. But no worries, because we have a handful of episodes lined up and ready to go into production. And thank you again for all of the feedback. I'm just getting an incredible amount of support from all of you. I love it. The more I hear from you, the more motivated I am to continue on with this series. We've had great fun with it. And let me tell you, we're really just getting into it. There is so much that is the story of the Kennedy assassination. And I think, as many of you have said, We keep getting into more interesting stuff as you go. Now, just a little bit about today's episode. On that day in Dallas, there were hundreds of witnesses in Dealey Plaza, and many of them looked up into the depository when those shots were first fired. There were various individuals in the windows that day, and they were on various floors. And I can tell you that the chaos of the moment generated a lot of confusion about who they were and whether or not they were part of a conspiracy. Well, that's what this episode is about. We're going to start unpacking that topic today. The information you'll hear today is also a crucial continuation of episode 19, in which we explore whether or not it was even possible for Lee Harvey Oswald to have been in the shooter's nest at the moment the shots were fired. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 20. Sometimes, when you're watching instant replay, you figure out that the receiver stepped out of bounds well before he got to the end zone. When that happens, it might be irrelevant whether his foot came down in bounds or not. What I'm trying to say here is that there is another camera angle, so to speak. Oh, geez, another sports analogy. Sorry. Well, plainly put, there were other factors in determining whether Lee Harvey Oswald was even up in the sniper's nest at the moment the shots were fired. The timestamp that we just discussed in episode 19 regarding the race that Marion Baker and presumably Oswald were both on is critical. But interestingly enough, there is significantly more evidential matter to evaluate regarding whether or not Oswald was even up there on the sixth floor. What happened inside the depository building outside of the famous moment that Marion Baker met Oswald in the lunchroom hardly ever gets told. That's what this episode is about, unpacking all of that. So here we go. We have a lot to cover. Let's start with more than a teaspoon of history related to the depository building itself, some of it quite relevant to the goings-on that day. 
The original building at the corner of Elm and Houston was built by the Rock Island Plow Company in 1898. Three years later, the building was struck by lightning, nearly burned to the ground, and was rebuilt the following year. There were now seven floors in the building, each with about 10,000 square feet and a basement. The building was constructed with what might be called single wall and single floor construction. That will become important in a minute, and I will explain the implications then, primarily as they relate to the floor. On July 4, 1939, the building was sold at auction and purchased by David Harold Byrd, a.k.a. D.H. Byrd. Byrd was an ultra-conservative Texas oil man. Sound familiar? And a co-founder of the Civil Air Patrol. Sound even more familiar? These are two more interesting coincidences that are the type the conspiracy theorists gobble up, but they likely have no significance really in this context. Both Lee Harvey Oswald and a character that we will introduce in a later episode, David Ferry, were both in the Civil Air Patrol together in Oswald's younger years. The building was leased to grocer wholesaler John Sexton and Company and was known as the Sexton Building for the next 20 years, all the way up to about 1959. There are some interesting connections that uh, D.H. Bird had, but we're not going to go into them at this moment. In the 1940s, a few blocks away on the third floor of the Santa Fe Building on Main Street were the offices of numerous school book companies. One of these companies was the Hugh Perry Book Depository. They shared offices on that same floor with other notable book publishers, a name or two that you might recognize, including Bob's Merrill, Lyons and Carnahan, McGraw-Hill, Scott Forsman, and Southwestern. In 1947, the president of the Hugh Perry Book Depository, Jack Kaysen, changed the company's name to the Texas School Book Depository. It was a small company then, and employees included 21-year-old Bill Shelley and Joe Molina, both of which will be mentioned later either in this episode or upcoming episodes. And there was one other person, too, that was important in this whole story. It was a shipping clerk named Roy Truly, who later climbed the ranks of the company to be a top manager and a member of the board of directors, and whom you have been introduced to already in episode 19. Five years later, in 1952, most of these school book companies moved from the Santa Fe building to the first floor of the Daltex building. You may have heard that building's name as well. A number of people present in Dealey Plaza the day of the assassination thought that at least one or more shots had come from the Daltex building. That is a building that is directly across the street from the Sexton building and very close to the current school book depository building. For the next 11 years, the office of the Texas School Book Depository Company was on the first floor of the Dow Tex building. On November 14, 1961, Sexton Foods vacated the building that we now know as the Depository at 411 Elm Street and moved to a modern distribution facility on Regal Row in Dallas. The building remained vacant for over a year until Jack Kaysen leased the building from D.H. Byrd for 15 years, purportedly for a very low price. The building had been vacant for a year. In early 1963, this 60-plus-year-old building underwent extensive remodeling and was refurbished with new interior walls, partitions, updated lighting, 
plumbing, sprinkler systems, and perhaps the most important improvement, air conditioning. Carpeting was installed in offices on the first, the second, the third, and the fourth floors, and a lunchroom for office workers was added on the second floor. That renovated lunchroom would soon become famous, as you already heard in episode 19. Not a lot of pictures exist of it, but it sure did get dressed up for the event. A new stairway at the front entrance provided access from the first floor to the second floor, and a newly installed traction-type passenger elevator carried office workers from the first floor through the fourth floors. That was basically over near the front entrance of the building, or rather the southeast corner. In the northwest corner of the building was the old wooden stairway and two open-gated freight elevators, one facing east, one facing west. Both the elevators and the stairs provided access to all floors, and they were to be used only by warehouse workers. The only other means of access to all floors of the book depository was a fire escape, and it was attached to the outside of the building with an exit onto Houston Street. In the summer of 1963, the Texas School Book Depository Company moved their company office from the Dow Tex building into the newly refurbished building at 411 Elm, and that building soon became known as the Texas School Book Depository Building. It would be relatively anonymous for the next few months, but after November, the name would be infamous. Other school book companies also moved into the newly refurbished building, including Lyons and Carnahan, Southwestern, Allen and Bacon, McMillan, American Book, McGraw-Hill, Gregg, and Scott Forsman. All of them were in the new location. Soon, there were 77 people working inside the newly remodeled building. Office workers in the new offices, and they were on the second, third, and fourth floors, and warehouse workers on the first, fifth, sixth, and seventh floors. I do want to reemphasize and clarify a couple of things, particularly as they relate to the elevator access in the building and where the stairwell and elevator shafts are located. As we did run through them quickly in episode 19, and I just repeated them a second ago, but I really want the audience to be clear on these points. I have not gone back to check it, but something tells me that I have made or included a confusing or even perhaps an inaccurate reference in episode 19 on one of the elevators. And I want to make sure that whatever references I make going forward here are exactly consistent with the diagrams of the layout of the school book depository building. I hope to place one of the exhibit schematics on the website. By the way, the website may be up relatively soon. I am hoping... As usual, a picture is worth more than a thousand of my words. So again, there was one passenger elevator used for regular foot traffic, and it was located up front near the southeast corner of the building and close to the front entrance. For the many publishing companies and the general activity of folks coming in and out of the building, this was the elevator used. There were two freight elevators, as I just mentioned, and more specifically, they were situated right next to one another all the way to the rear of the building, snug up and right along the back wall, and slightly to the northwest end of the building, effectively a bit left of center, so to speak, in the very rear of the building. As I mentioned, one of these elevator entrances faced east and the other elevator entrance faced west. 
with each of their rears butting up to one another, so to speak. These two elevators were the main elevators that were used to carry books up and down between the floors when completing orders. They had wooden slat doors with enough space between the slats to see out into the floor space area. So you could actually see out as you were heading up or down on the elevator. One of the elevators was push button operated. That was the west elevator. And that elevator could be called up or down from whatever location you were at. The other elevator, the east elevator, required someone to be in the elevator car itself and effectively drive it down to the location it was going to. It was possible to reach in through the wooden slats and push a button inside the east elevator and send it up or down, but it was not generally operated that way. And more importantly, if that elevator was not on the floor that you were on, unless you had someone working with you to send the elevator back up, it would be impossible for you to get on that elevator and take it anywhere else. There was only one main internal stairwell that could be taken from the basement all the way to the seventh floor. It was a squeaky wooden stairwell that was located in the very northwest corner of the building, right in the corner where the north and the west walls of the building meet. It was just west or to the left of and very close to the two freight elevators. Okay, that was probably overkill, but it's a very important set of references on where all these items are in the building. Okay, let's pivot to the story now. Of the some 500 photographs taken and cataloged that day in Dealey Plaza, the Tom Dillard picture is of particular importance in today's episode. Dillard was a local news photographer. Three depository employees shown in the picture taken by Dillard were on the fifth floor of the building when the shots were fired. Because they were visible in the windows and because of the chaos in the moment, their presence there that day has created a tremendous amount of confusion in the understanding of the story of the shooter and who was in the window and where, and who was involved, particularly as it relates to conspiracy theories. The three men involved were James Jarman Jr. Jarman was a 34-year-old rapper in the shipping department. In those days, at the depository, a rapper was not a singer. He simply wrapped paper around books that were shipped. Bonnie Ray Williams was a younger member of the crew. He was 20 years of age, and he was a wrapper and a checker of orders who was temporarily assigned to laying a new plywood floor on the 5th and 6th floors of the building. And Harold Norman, who was 26 years old, was an order filler himself. The depository actually operates another building. It's north on Houston Street, north of the main depository building, which is located at 411 Elm Street. Originally, Bonnie Ray Williams worked in that particular building. He actually made his way over to work in the main school book depository building because he was helping with the installation of the plywood floors. The installations themselves had started first with the fifth floor, and after finishing the work on the fifth floor, the crew moved upstairs to work on the sixth floor. They were in the middle of completing the sixth floor installation at the time of the assassination, with only a portion of that floor completed as of November 22nd. That is somewhat relevant because the process of laying floor required constant reshuffling of all the book box cartons on the floor as they moved from one side of the building to the other when installing the plywood. 
Interestingly enough, Bonnie Ray Williams didn't know Oswald, although he recognized him from moments over the course of those last few weeks when Oswald was working there. Ironically, most of the time it was at lunch when Williams would observe Oswald downstairs at lunchtime. Oswald would occasionally eat in the lunch area. Williams would later recollect in his testimony for the Warren Commission one particular interaction that he had with Oswald. One day at lunch, Williams observed Oswald in the lunchroom reading some sort of a political newspaper. He watched as Oswald smiled and then laughed, finally throwing the paper down and then getting up and just walking out. That incident took place in the domino room, which was a room where they could eat lunch and play dominoes. The domino room was on the first floor. Oh, one more thing stuck out in Bonnie Ray's mind. Oswald never read the sports page. On November 22nd, Williams saw him a couple of times that day, once with a clipboard in his hand, which was typical because Oswald used a clipboard, as some others did as well, to hold and keep track of the book orders that were being filled. Williams saw him again. He thought possibly once around 10 o'clock and again around 11.30 and finally closer to 12. Williams was working that day on the sixth floor with four other colleagues. Bill Shelley was up there along with Charles Givens and a fellow named Danny Arch. Arch was Mexican in ethnicity. Billy Lovelady, another depository employee, was also up there working a bit, but he was coming back and forth to the floor to help. Lovelady was shuffling his time between working on the plywood installation and filling the book orders timely as they came in. Just as they did every morning as they got started on the plywood project, they would start a row at the back or north side of the building and work a row of plywood sheets forward to the front or south side of the building. As he recalled in his testimony, Williams thought he might have seen Oswald up on the sixth floor one time that morning, perhaps messing around with some cartons or something back over on the east side, over in the back of the building, but not over next to where the shots purportedly came from, which obviously was near the front window. If he had seen Oswald on the sixth floor, and he truly wasn't sure about that, it was closer to the east side of the east elevator, but that wasn't unusual, as Williams seemed to imply that he had seen Oswald messing around with cartons before. Normally, the crew would stop about five minutes before noon to get ready for lunch, basically to go wash up before they got a bite to eat. On this day, because everyone was so excited that the presidential motorcade was going to come by, the crew stopped just a bit earlier perhaps 10 minutes before 12, or likely around 11.50. The guys working on the project always had a little fun as they headed down to the lunchroom, with a couple of them getting in the east elevator and then a couple more getting into the west elevator, and then both groups racing down to see which elevator could get there first. As they made their way down on the elevator, a voice shouted out, Hey guys, how about an elevator? Or something to that effect. It was a voice that later Bonnie Ray would speculate came from the sixth or the fifth floors. It was Oswald for sure, and he was calling out to the guys to send him an elevator so that he too could come down, presumably for lunch. As they descended, they heard Oswald say something more, say something like, close the gate on the elevator and send the elevator back up. 
again, they were not sure where the voice had come from, whether Oswald was on the fifth or the sixth floor. But according to Bonnie Ray Williams, it probably was one of those two floors. It was simply too hard to judge as they were moving rapidly down on the elevator. When they got to the bottom, Charles Givens said, come on, boy, and he closed the gate on the elevator after Bonnie Ray was out. Givens tried to send the elevator back up, presumably so Oswell could use it, but it didn't seem to want to go. The crew got to the first floor and Williams headed to a sink to wash up and then went into the domino room where he kept his lunch. He grabbed it and then went back upstairs. His lunch was contained in a number six or a number eight paper bag, like the ones you get at the grocery store. He had a chicken sandwich in it, or that's what he called it. It really was chicken on the bone with a couple of slices of bread. While Bonnie Ray was gathering his lunch, the crew that he had come downstairs with was talking, and it seemed like everybody was going to head back up to the sixth floor to watch the parade. Billy Lovelady had made a comment that he definitely wanted to watch from up there, too. And then Danny Arch also agreed that they should watch it from the sixth floor. Bonnie Ray was ready to go, so hearing all of that, he started heading up toward the sixth floor. In a moment, he was back up to the sixth floor, and Bonnie Ray began to eat his lunch right in front of the third or fourth set of windows, but not where the sniper's nest was, but close, and only a couple of windows down from there. There were some boxes right behind where the window was that he had chosen, so he sat down and he leaned up against them. It was a bit uncomfortable sitting that way, so he found a two-wheeler cart that was nearby, and he sat on it. But by this time, Williams was getting impatient. His fellow work friends were not up there yet. Where were they, he wondered. He looked around, and he couldn't see much of the sixth floor because the books at the time were stacked very high. He finished eating his piece of chicken, and he left the sack next to the two-wheeler. He set his Dr. Pepper bottle down there, too, on top of the boxes, right to the side of the two-wheeler. Next, he scrambled up onto his feet, and he walked to the back of the building, then taking the east elevator down. This is the elevator with one gate that works with a hand pedal and not push buttons. He intended to stop on the fifth floor to see if that is where his work friends ended up. As he got off the fifth floor... Later, he would recollect that both the east and the west elevators were now stationed right there, positioned on the fifth floor. But this point was a bit foggy, and he wasn't totally sure of that. He got off the elevator and headed to the front of the building, where he would now join Harold Norman and James Jarman. He was not sure exactly what time that was, but thought it would be around 1220 or at least that's the time settled upon by he and his Warren Commission interrogator, Joe Ball. This is an incredibly important timestamp, and we'll get back to that in a moment. It's interesting to note that Bonnie Ray Williams was interviewed on multiple occasions by FBI agents before his testimony was taken by the commission. The information that was documented by the FBI about those conversations is, in some instances, inconsistent with later statements made by Williams. He was asked about that in the Warren Commission testimony, and it's pretty clear that the FBI may have manipulated what they put in those earlier reports. At the very least, they misinterpreted in a material way what he meant. A good example of that is the testimony related to how long Williams was up there on the sixth floor eating his lunch before he then exited down to the fifth floor to find his other worker friends. He was interviewed by the FBI on November 23rd, the day after the assassination. 
The FBI documented that Williams went up to the sixth floor to eat his lunch right at 12 noon and then stayed only about three minutes. Warren Commission Counsel Joe Ball asked Williams specifically about this, about what he purportedly said to the FBI during that earlier conversation. And the young man specifically indicated that he did not remember telling the FBI that he stayed only three minutes. He was sure that he stayed longer than that. This frightened young man was just being grilled on what, I'm sure to him, seemed like petty little details that no one was likely to have paid attention to at the moment, but that now, now, were so important to determining the timeline and the feasibility of Oswell being in that spot at that moment. The bottom line here, though, is that this is but one more glaring circumstance where the FBI was likely revising testimony for the benefit of the already determined narrative. The FBI knew that if Williams had actually been up there eating his lunch all the way up through about 1220, it would have been extremely difficult for Oswald or any other shooter to have been on that floor and not made any movement that whole time. Staying still and waiting patiently until Williams exited so that he could then position himself to make the shot. To be up there on that floor without Williams hearing or seeing something. Well, that seems extraordinary, but we do know that someone took a shot from up there. So it seems undoubtedly it was a sea of boxes up there and the shooter could have been lurking in the shadow of the boxes and likely was. This whole scenario also assumes that the shooter was close enough to be able to hear Williams exit and then quickly emerge from the shadows after he was sure that it was all clear and then set himself up rather quickly, I might add, for the shot. And remember, without some form of outside communication device, there really was no way that a shooter up on that floor, isolated by himself, could determine exactly when the motorcade was going to be making the right turn off of Main and onto Houston Street, where it would first be visible and within range for a potential shot. All of this together points to the fact that it was unlikely that a shooter would have cut things that close in terms of getting himself ready to make the shot. That point in the documentation was critical then, and here, once again, the Warren Commission would take testimony in broad daylight on this critical topic, refuting what was in the FBI report and basically not thinking much of it or saying much more about it. No wonder the critics began to gather so quickly after its publication. Without overcomplicating things, though, Oswald could never properly account for his time between about noon and 12.30. And at the end of the day, had he been standing right next to someone who actually could have vouched for him, that would have probably put the whole thing to bed anyway. That was not the case. And to be fair to the FBI, Williams wasn't completely sure how long he was up there on the sixth floor eating his lunch before he descended to the fifth floor. Again, Williams estimated somewhere between five and 15 minutes, but it sure wasn't three, and he never said that to the FBI. Bonnie Ray got off on the fifth floor and made his way to the front of the building, where James Jarman and Henry Norman were. Sometimes they called Henry Norman Hank. Hank, as Bonnie Ray Williams remembered it, was situated directly under the sixth floor window where Oswell was supposedly firing the shots at the president and the motorcade. 
As Williams recalls, he himself was one window over from where Hank was, and James Jarman, or Junior as they sometimes called him, was two or three more windows over from where Bonnie Ray was, two or three more windows toward the west from him. Williams was in a squatting position and on the balls of his feet, or maybe on his knees, to be able to look squarely out the window. As Williams describes the shots, he heard three of them, with the second two shots coming closer together to each other. As he described it, he really didn't pay too much attention to the first shot because he did not know what was happening at that very moment. But by the second shot, it sounded like it was right in the building. Bonnie Ray thought that one of the shots sounded as if it even shook the building, and he felt like some cement actually fell on his head. Well, cement, gravel, dirt, or something from the old building because it shook the windows. He then went on to say that Harold turned to him, saying, It came right from over our head. Williams, in a pretty excited state now, yelled, Bullshit! Not the bullshit associated with you are lying, but the bullshit of I can't believe it. And they all jumped up, and Harold Norman again said, It came directly over our heads. I can even hear the shell being ejected from the gun hitting the floor. Williams himself did not hear the shells being ejected from the gun, but he speculated that was probably because he wasn't paying attention at that moment. But he was sure that Norman had heard it because Norman was directly under the window that Oswald shot from and had just proclaimed it right in front of him. By this time, James Jarman had begun to move closer over to where the other two men were standing and yelled out, man, somebody is shooting at the president. And again, Williams said, no bullshit. These three men were already pretty revved up and they quickly all decided that they needed to run down to the west side of the fifth floor so that they could get a better look or at least a closer look at what was happening. They could see policemen and people running scared. Williams knew there were some railroad tracks on the west side of the building Everyone was running toward that way, and they could see it. And all three men thought to themselves that the shots had just come from over their own heads. But since everybody was running toward the tracks, well, they just assumed that somebody or something was down there too. And it was a natural response to watch and then follow the crowd. Harold Norman had noticed that the cement had fallen on William's head, and he said, Man, I know it came from there. It even shook the building. And he turned and looked at Williams and said, You got something on your head. And then James Jarman said, Yeah, and man, don't you brush it out. Well, Williams was to forget that advice in the chaos of the moment. He did unwittingly brush it out once he got downstairs. Williams, after the three men had moved down over to the west end of the floor, would catch a glimpse of Officer Marion Baker. He would see from afar the white motorcycle helmet of Baker as he briefly peered into the fifth floor on his way up the stairs to the top of the building. The men descended the stairs quickly on the way to the first floor, but as they got to the fourth floor on the way down, they could see several women, two or three of them standing and looking out a window. This fact was never explored more completely, but it likely was Elsie Dorman and Dorothy Granger, whom you'll hear about in the next episode. By the time the men got to the first floor, law officers were already in the building. As they got to the first floor, Williams heard an officer shout, No one leave the building! An officer then asked Williams if he worked there, and after telling the officer yes, the officers took down their names and addresses and then began searching everyone, and then 
finally making a decision after they learned that the men had worked upstairs, supposedly near where the shooter was, to gather up all of these employees that were working on the sixth floor at the time and take them all downtown to the courthouse for questioning and completion of affidavits. The men working on the sixth floor at this point split up and several officers took Williams and Danny Arch downtown. As Williams recalls it, Harold Norman and James Jarman had not yet come down yet, but they would eventually be taken to the police station. The police took Bill Shelley and Billy Lovelady separately and a fellow by the name of Jack Dougherty, and then later on, Charles Givens would be identified too. They were all going to the police station for questioning and to make statements, right behind Bonnie Ray Williams and Danny Arch. Before he left the depository, Williams recalls Roy truly asking the question out loud, where is Lee? The only other person that wasn't accounted for at that moment, it seems like to Williams, was Charles Givens. Givens was another African-American man that had been working with him upstairs. Williams didn't think he was in the building at the time of the shooting. He thought to himself that Givens was probably downtown somewhere. Williams seemed to recollect that Truly's comment about Lee was in response to an officer asking Truly, is everyone here? You know, after the assassination, a Dallas police officer was photographed proudly displaying a brown lunch sack and an empty Dr. Pepper bottle. In various books, including Four Days, the caption under this photograph read, A lunch bag and a pop bottle held here by a Dallas police technician, and three spent shell casings were found by the sixth floor window. The sniper had dined on fried chicken and pop while waiting to shoot the president. So now you have heard where the popular myth came from that is now so often repeated. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. But what I want to pivot to now is in episode 19, you first heard about the reenactments in Dealey Plaza and at the depository that took place on March 20th, 1964. These three men, James Jarman, Harold Norman, and Bonnie Ray Williams, came back to take part in that reenactment. Preceding their appearance before the commission, these three witnesses were interviewed in Dallas. At that time, members of the commission's legal staff conducted an experiment. Norman, Williams, and Jarman all placed themselves at the windows of the fifth floor in the exact positions as they had been on November 22nd when the shots first rang out. A Secret Service agent located right above them on the sixth floor where the shooter's nest was found operated a bolt rifle. At the same time, three cartridge shells were dropped to the floor at intervals of about three seconds. According to Norman, the noise outside was less on the day of the assassination than on the day of the test. Even with that condition present on March 20th, after the test, Norman would say this to the commission, well, I heard the same sound, the sound similar. I heard three of something that he dropped on the floor and then I could hear the rifle or whatever he had up there. This was such a convincing piece of evidence and testimony that the commission decided to repeat the experiment with the shells and the rifle for members of the commission. The demonstration took place on May 9, 1964, again on June 7, 1964, and finally a third time on September 6, 1964. All seven of the Warren Commission commissioners were present at those demonstrations, and all seven clearly heard the shells drop to the floor. Now, let's pause for a minute and unpack this one fact. Now, you've been in a modern office building. Have you ever been able to hear with clarity just exactly what's happening on the floor above you? 
Of course not. But the construction in a modern office building of today was not the construction in the school book depository at that moment. It was an old building, and in fact, as I had mentioned earlier, parts of it up through the fourth floor had been renovated, but the fifth and the sixth floors were still in basically original condition. This was a building built around the turn of the century. It was in need of work, and in those days, in the 1960s, with the original building being as old as it was, the original floors were pretty simple on the fifth and the sixth floor. They were simply two by sixes laid down one right next to another over the cross beams or floor joists, and there was no subfloor. Typically, you would have at least a subfloor and then floor and then sound dampening padding and then some other surface like carpet or tile. There was none of that. There was just two by sixes, simple two by sixes. Even the straightest of two by sixes laid all together would potentially have visible spots in between at various points where you could see right through. Cracks in the flooring, that is, and the insulation value would be low. So, noises above would be easily heard, with this kind of floor anyway. It was the crudest of flooring techniques at best, but certainly practical, and it was precisely the reason that the depository had made the decision to upgrade the floors and had already started installing plywood over the top of the 2x6s. It was exactly the project that young Bonnie Ray Williams was in the middle of completing. As Shakespeare would say, all of our yesterdays have lighted sorrows. There are so many actors in this play that would like to rewind the tape and do things differently. After the assassination, Roy Truly, the depository manager, would comment that it was his decision to use internal labor resources to lay the new plywood on the fifth and sixth floors. Because of this, they needed some temporary help to backfill the normal work during that time of the season at the depository. It was this very reason that Oswell got the temporary job to come work there. Without those new plywood floors, well, who knows? Who knows how many more men went to Vietnam because that job was done internally. There is no doubt that our lives and all the events around them are so incredibly interconnected and interwoven with most of the knots simply mundane. But some of them from time to time are quite profound. Incidentally, there doesn't seem to be one part of this story that is not, at times, without some form of evidentiary controversy. There are some who believe that the chicken bones in the pop bottle were intentionally moved. For what reason that might have happened, well, it's not clear. Perhaps to strengthen the argument that Oswald had lunch up there and clearly was not eating in the lunchroom when they found him. Perhaps just one more thing to refute his alibi that he was downstairs at the time of the shooting and not upstairs on the sixth floor. You see, after the original story came out, it was not long before the investigators discovered that the lunch in question actually belonged to one of Oswald's co-workers, Bonnie Ray Williams, not to Oswald. Williams had no reason to hide that fact, the fact that he had sat and waited patiently for the president's motorcade. Some conspiracy theorists contend that the chicken bones and the Dr. Pepper were originally found on the fifth floor. They were brought upstairs and placed near the sniper's nest. This detail has some merit when you analyze the comments made by WFAA news photographer Tom Alia. WFAA was an ABC affiliate. Alia followed the first group of officers from floor to floor in the depository. Miraculously, he was able to slip into the building before they sealed it off. 
and he made his way upstairs and he filmed the various floors and the officers as they searched for an assassin and they looked for evidence. Years after the assassination, Alia would tell fellow reporter Connie Kritzberg, there were no chicken bones on the sixth floor. We covered every inch of it, and I filmed everything that could possibly be suspected as evidence. There definitely were no chicken bones on or near the barricade or boxes at the window. He went on to later say that various officers made various official statements about those bones, and none of it is true. He also was quite clear in later statements that the Dr. Pepper bottle was brought up from the fifth floor. Go figure on all of this. He is clearly a credible witness and was the guy on the scene filming things upstairs on the sixth floor at that very moment. On the other hand, the official Warren Commission testimony of Bonnie Ray Williams, who was the one who actually ate the chicken, testified very clearly to the commission that he left the bag and the bottle up there on the sixth floor. One more example where fact in the Kennedy assassination is more fascinating than fiction. Thank you for listening to episode 20 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.